Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Well, thank you, church family, and thank you for the leaders and Pastor Josh for thinking of doing that. I've left pastoral ministry now almost 12 years ago to take on the role as your national president, and that's the kind of stuff I miss. Being at a church week after week and doing life together. In my role, I'm in different churches almost every week. I, I get back to my home church in Kitchener, Ontario, just enough so the elders don't have to come visit me. So that's, uh, that's about it. I mean, last week I was, where was I? <laughs> I, was in, uh, I was in at Mabubhai, uh, uh, a Filipino church in, uh, in Winnipeg. And the week before at Bramley Baptist, the week before at Pembroke, Ontario, the week before I was preaching in Seville, Spain, visiting our missionaries. And so I get around. And uh, that kind of stuff is something that uh, I cherish, as I know you do as well. So I want to thank you. Um, I found my wife last night praying to God that the florist actually arrived at the door. And he did. And she got her Mother's Day flowers because I'm not here, there once again for Mother's Day on Sunday. And uh, I do appreciate it. Marilyn had a fall in 2014 while we were visiting missionaries in, in Europe. And it meant uh, significant surgery in, uh, in Athens and four surgeries following that in Canada, of course. And now she has a condition called complex regional pain disorder, which brings on episodic pain that's off the chart. But she also deals with just normal, significant pain 24-7 and for the rest of her life, unless the Lord intervenes. So I'm grateful for Sean praying and uh, others praying that we see that end. I would love to see that. As a typical husband, I'd like to fix it, but I can't. We just have to walk together and trust the Lord through this. But keep praying. If you ever think about me, and I don't think that'll be often, Pray for my wife. Pray for that pain. It is significant. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, I know some of your folks because I went to Katsuhogar uh, in, in uh, Honduras a number of years ago and, and hung out with Sean and Buck and some of the others. And so it's great to be back. I was here a number of years ago, about a decade. Pastor Steve had invited me. I've known St- Pastor Steve for about 30 years and only just starting to get to know your pastor, uh, Pastor Josh. And so it's a real pleasure to be back with you. I want to bring greetings to you in the name of the Lord from your Fellowship National Council and the 527 churches that make up our fellowship. You are part of something much larger than yourself. You may not be aware of that, but we have a large fellowship of churches from coast to coast to coast who love Jesus, and God is doing significant things. I just want to share a few things about the fellowship before we enter in God's word. This first slide here is a reference point to a, a pipeline of how we're seeking to get people from our churches out onto the, into cultural ministry, out into the world. And I just visited some of our missionaries in Spain. Spain, one of the darkest spiritual places I've ever been in the world. And I've been to a lot of places where almost 96% of people are atheists. And yet I went during the Easter week because I wanted to see these large parade possession, processions where people are wearing these tall cone-like um, masks like the Ku Klux Klan type cones and they're walking through the streets and all this religiosity and symbolism is still there in that country with no substance. But our pipeline starts in phase one where we have epic and on-site camps 
uh, as a church, if you want some support to put on summer camps, our Fellowship International Department can come alongside. So each summer, we are in different fellowship churches across the land. We hire 70 university students and 282 high school students this year to man these camps. And these are the first individuals we're encouraging to think about missions. We start very young and work towards that. Then moving to phase two, it's in a recruitment time. They can get into a cohort where they can develop an interest in global mission. In phase three at the top there, the launch, the launch program is a mid-term launch program for Gen Zs and, or younger millennials who will then go for anywhere from two months to a year to work with one of our Fellowship International missionaries being mentored and coached on a field in the 22 countries our missionaries are serving in. And that's been a remarkable, we have three young ladies who are going this summer to Spain and to Colombia through our launch program. Phase four is training and partnerships. We have more training that we can give young people. They're developing currently a video series for Gen Zs about global missions. But then we also have other uh, higher level training for any individuals in our churches who wanna know more about fellowship, uh, about global missions. Phase five is appointing new uh, missionaries, long-term or mid-term missionaries. And although COVID was a very difficult time for our churches, we were as busy as we've ever been in recent history. We, we appointed from our fellowship churches 16 different missionary families in the last two years. And for us, that's a recruitment boom. So God was doing something in the hearts of people during the pandemic to redirect their careers into something very different that they didn't actually realize. And then lastly, leaders formation. This is uh, mature leaders in our churches, pastors and elders and leaders who then go to a country where our missionaries are serving and they commit for five years going one one time each year to teach a cohort of uh, indigenous national pastors and leaders, none of which most, most pastors around the world do not have a seminary or a Bible college uh, education that just doesn't exist in, in most of the world. But we're seeking to give them that over a five-year period with our pastors training national leaders. And so that's the pipeline. If we can go to the next slide, it shares these are some of the new appointees who are going into different fields. You can see that for yourself. Some of them are looking for support. So if you're looking to use some of the Lord's money to help some of these uh, Fellowship International missionaries, which are your missionaries, we'd love to have uh, Great Village or individuals in Great Village come alongside some of these folks. The next slide shares those who have just been deployed in recent days. The Millers are from our Prairies region who have gone to Pakistan last October or November. Pietro Antonio's just this spring have gone to Spain. Uh, Adam started as a launch student. He went to Japan for a year and he met a young lady who was an American there for a year. They married, they've come back, raised their support, and they've gone back to Japan to serve the Lord there. The Rokabis are from our Pacific region and uh, they're leaving for Japan this summer. And then uh, uh, Juliana Richardson is one of our launch students who's leaving from Barrie, Ontario, is leaving for Japan, or for Columbia in the next, uh, in the next month. So the last slide. This is our summer appeal as a fellowship. Every quarter or every four months, we have an appeal for all our churches to get involved in. This one is for Fellowship International. It's called Empowering the Nations. We have here four veteran Fellowship International missionaries who have a very mature and developed national 
leadership development plan with the leaders amongst the churches they're working with. And we're trying to raise $15,000 per field or a $60,000 total to help supplement and subsidize some of that training of national leaders, many of which have no funds themselves. They're very poor individuals, many of these pastors in these countries. And we'd like to subsidize bringing them together on a regular basis for greater training and coaching for uh, church planting in their country. So if Great Village or yourself individually would like to be involved in that, you can go online to our website and there's a short five minute video that will tell you a whole lot more and some other material, but I encourage you to take a look at that. Just lastly, a couple other things. Uh, we have a, f a chaplaincy ministry in our fellowship, and uh, in the last decade, it's grown from 27 to 143 chaplains, serving in 16 different contexts, from military chaplains to truck stop chaplains to sports chaplains to uh, long-term care facility, hospital chaplains, first responder chaplains. And they are serving the Lord, trying to demonstrate the love of Christ as an extension of the local church in the community. Chaplains serve in what we refer to as closed communities. These are communities that a pastor or people from the church cannot just walk into. You go to your local police station and say, I've come to tell you about Jesus, and they'll say, there's the exit. But a chaplain is allowed to do that. It's easy, and she has given permission. And so these chaplains, as an extension of our local church, are reaching in areas in the workplaces, in the community, that typically is harder for churches to get there. I'm going to fly into the Toronto airport tonight. If I go to ch in Terminal 1 and I go to the chapel there, if you ever do, you walk in there, there's a Roman Catholic chapel, chaplain, and then there's 12 other chaplains. They're all fellowship men and women who attend our churches. Three of them are full-time fellowship chaplains. We have got that in a number of the international airports. Uh, we used to be, uh, uh, um, we have that actually, Peter is our chaplain in Halifax Airport, a fellowship chaplain. And so uh, go visit your chap chapel. Tell him uh, Steve Jones sent you. He better know who I am because I'm his boss. But uh, enjoy yourself there at talking to Peter as, your, as the chaplain there. Our Francophone ministry, Great Villages have been involved in this ministry where we're trying to start church, church plants in Quebec. Quebec remains one of the most needy spiritual places on the planet, not just Canada. At 0.8 of 1% self-identifying as evangelical Christian, that's one of the least reached people groups in the world. And so we still see Quebec is a special place that we as English Canadians have a responsibility to reach. And so we try to get churches in English Canada to partner in seven-year projects to plant churches in Quebec. And I'm so grateful that Great Village has been involved in that ministry. Doug got you involved in that a number of years ago. Pastor Doug. And thank you for your ministry at Casa Hogar. I've been there myself a few times and uh, and. I adopted one of those kids too, as many of you have also been supporting some of those kids. You can still become a child sponsorship. We're up around 600 sponsorships now in five different projects in four different countries. We're hoping to get to 1,000 sponsorships by the year 2026. So we do need some others who will come alongside at $35 a month and support these children. We are responsible for them in these five areas. The fellowship is. We're the only ones who are going to be caring for them. And it's you people. It's people within our fellowship are actually doing that. So thank you for doing that at Casa Hogar. Deeply appreciate that. Well, let's prepare our hearts as we, uh, we open up his word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to just gather. We come before your word. 
we uh, recognize its authority in our lives. And I, I just pray, Father, that you will speak to each of your children here this morning in some way. There's something that each of us, whether we're 10 years old or whether we're 90 years old, there's something you have to say to us. May your spirit find freedom in the hearts of your children this morning and that we will apply whatever that is to our lives this week for your glory, but for our great good. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, I looked up in the dictionary uh, for, the, for the word motherhood to get a definition. What I found very interesting is the word motherhood, the word before motherhood was momentous, and the word after motherhood was motivate. And I thought that was a, that's an interesting way of looking at motherhood. Didn't, not the definition, but the words before. I said, that's kind of what mothers are all about. They motivate. They're, they're momentous impact in all of our lives. Now, I found very interesting when I went to look at the word fatherhood in the dictionary, the word before and after was fathead and fatigue. So a very different way of looking at fatherhood. But we're here to celebrate moms. So God bless you all for your ministry in the lives of your children and the children of this church and in the lives of us. I lost my mom at 26 years of age. Mom was 54. I feel so gypped one of my best friends. And so kids, young people, teenagers, man, you give your mom a hug today. I desperately would love to have done that today. We never know how long we're going to have. Oh, that's great. (laughs) You can do that. You can hug. Even a holy kiss might be allowed in this place. I don't know. My message this morning Sorry, I'm sporting a real cold. When you travel as much as I do and breathe everybody's air on all these plane trips, it's bound to happen from time to time. But the message is pertinent for mothers. It's on faith, or the exercise of faith, or what I call the ease of great faith. Our faith should become easy because we worship a great God. A great God. I want to start with a question that you may or may not agree with, but I hope in the next... I don't know how long I got here, three hours, but I hope in the next time, the time whatever time I have, I, I hope to convince you that this, this is a true statement. It's simply this. If you're a believer, if you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, you get to decide every day, every day of your life, you get to decide how much God chooses to bless you. It's a decision you get to make every day. Now, as good Canadians, we find that a little bit too bold. I'm not telling God what to do. You know, we're polite. We don't demand things of God. And that kind of sounds like those health and wealth gospel preachers who claim it and name it and tell God, and, and that's wrong. But I'm telling you, the scriptures are replete with verse after verse. You can look through the whole New Testament And you see this over and over again, this principle of sowing and reaping. That if you sow little, expect little in return when the harvest comes. You sow much, you should expect much. This principle of sowing and reaping indicates throughout the New Testament that as we seek God and as we pursue him and as we seek to to look to him for blessing, he blesses those who reach out. 
every single day, we get an opportunity to obey God and his precepts and his commands. We get the opportunity to ask him to bless. Every day, we get to choose. We get to choose how much God chooses to bless us. There is this co-relationship in the scriptures between, bless, uh, between reaching out and, and seeking and obeying and believing by faith what God says and God's blessing follows. How do I know that? Jesus says it, Matthew 9 and verse 29. According to your faith, it'll be done to you. So according to how I believe you at your word, it can be done to me? Yeah. Like big stuff? Oh, yeah. Little stuff? Yeah. According to your faith, it will be done to you. There is this relationship between my capacity to believe God and his blessing that follows. He loves to bless those who believe him at his word. Jesus would go on to say in Mark 9 and verse 23, anything, anything, let me say that again, anything is possible if a person believes. So this is pretty heady stuff. If we can believe God at his word, he will bless our lives as a result. Now, why don't we do it then? Because we're sinners and we struggle and we truly struggle. Even the best intentions can sometimes turn around and you can fail God. When I was trying to help my young five-year-old son, he's now 32, big strapping guy, when he was five years old and I was a young dad trying to teach him what it means to walk by faith, because that's a, conceptually, that's sometimes hard to even teach adults. What does it mean to, you know, when the rubber hits the road, what does it mean to live every day living by faith? What does that look like? And the best analogy I could come up for my five-year-old boy was, I said, Alec, faith is like a muscle. It's like a muscle. Now, if you want to be big and strong like your dad, I mean, he's five years old. What, he's looking at me, and he thinks I'm big and strong. He doesn't know I'm not, but he's five years old. I mean, if you, you want muscles like your dad, then you're going to have to exercise your muscles. So get out there and exercise. And my, my son, he's still got way too much energy. I used to tell him to go around the house five times. Just run around the house five times, before, you, and then you can come back in the house. Just to get him tired. I mean, you got to exercise. And if you don't exercise, your muscles will never develop. They'll never become stronger. In fact, they'll become weaker. They atrophy, in fact, if you don't use them. I had to explain atrophy to my five-year-old. But he got it. He understood it. And my son, for the rest of his life, his 32 years, he's into weights and lifting and exercising. He's so different than me. I mean, he likes to lift dumbbells. Me, I like to lift donuts. We're very, very different. <laughs> So faith is like a muscle, needs to be exercised. Now we turn to a passage in Luke's Gospel. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles there to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And I want to read the passage in its entirety. Or not in, uh, most, uh, uh, most of chapter 7 anyway. Starting at verse 1, we read this. When Jesus had finished saying all this, he went back to Capernaum. Now Capernaum was a was a major city in the northern Israel, Judea area. It's just south on the, on, the, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So you have Judea down here where Jerusalem and all the religious elites and all the wealthy and the beautiful people live down there who were threatened by Jesus' ministry, threatening that he was threatened by his, 
you know, his allurement by all the people, his popularity, his radical ideas. And then you have the northern people up in Galilee. You know, in Canada, we kind of make fun sometimes of, the, of Newfoundlanders. I love, I love Newfies. I've loved them everywhere I've gone and through, but we like to make fun of them. This is the way the Galileans were basically t- treated in the, in the days of Jesus. They had an accent. They had a funny accent. And, uh, and they had jokes about the Galileans. So it, it's kind of that region. And Capernaum is the main city in the region here. And we believe this is where uh, Peter's mother-in-law lived. And this is what Jesus would often do. He'd come to an area, and then he'd go out, he'd stay in that area, and then he'd go out and do daily itinerant ministry in different villages and places to meet the people, but would come back to sleep and eat with his, with his disciples overnight. This is what's happening in Capernaum, and now he's just had a day of ministry, and he's coming back into Capernaum, and this is what happens starting in verse 2. Now the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish leaders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they eventually, they earnestly begged Jesus to come with them and help the man. If anyone deserves your help, it's he, they said, for he loves the Jews and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before he arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go. Or I say, come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this or that, they do it. Verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. The word is also used marveled in other translations. He marveled. Turning to the crowd, Jesus said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land of Israel. That's an amazing statement. You mean more faith than your mother Mary? More faith than John the Baptist? More faith than Matthew and and John and Luke? Apparently so. I mean, Jesus doesn't lie. I haven't seen faith like this in all the land of Israel. And when the, the officer's friends returned to his home, they found the slave completely healed. Now, if, if you concluded that this passage in chapter 7 was a story about healing, you only got partly right. It's really, the primary story here is about faith, about exercising faith, the ease of great faith is what I like to refer to it as. What's happening here? A group of of Jewish synagogue leaders in Capernaum are meeting Jesus and some of the apostles as they're coming back to their home for the evening. And he's saying, we have a Roman officer who has a slave who's near to death and he would like you to heal him. Now, we're told a number of things by Dr. Luke who wrote this gospel about this Roman officer. Other trans, uh, translations refer to him as a centurion. And for the Roman army, the centurion was, historians will tell you, the backbone of the Roman army. These were brave, courageous, sometimes ruthless men, leaders of men, leaders of leaders. They were men who were cherry-picked out from the ranks after 20 years of service in the Roman army to become leaders of over 100 to 140 men. These were the men you went into battle with and you followed your centurion wherever he went. 
You loved him, you served him, you obeyed him. Every commander on the field knew the strength of his centurion cohorts because he knew he needed to know that strength to know whether he's going to win the battle for that day. These were the backbone of the Roman army. And Dr. Luke tells us something about this centurion in Luke chapter 7. The first thing we're told, we can go to the next slide, is that we're, we're told about this, this man's character. And the first thing we're told, he was willing to sacrifice. In verse 5, what's going on? The Jewish leaders, who are really not friends of the Romans, these are, this is a nation that has come and taken over their nation, and, and Roman law has been ruling their land for years now, and the Jews were cantankerous at the best of times and rebelling all of the time. But these Jewish leaders are saying, he's a good one, Jesus. If there's any good ones, this is one of them. He actually, he says in verse 5, he actually from his own wallet, his own purse, he has given us sufficient money to build us a synagogue. Now, Pastor Josh, if someone came alongside and said, here's $4 million, go build yourself a new church building, he'd probably become one of your best friends, wouldn't he? He'd be a good one. Well, this is how they felt about this centurion. Out of his own pocket, he had built them a synagogue. Now, this is a photo. I've been to Capernaum a couple times, and this is a, this is a photo of, of the synagogue in Capernaum. It's a third or fourth century A.D., so it's about three, 400 years after Christ. But if you go to the far corner and you look down, there's a pit that they've dug about four feet, five feet down, and it's about 15 by, uh, by 12 feet. And if, it's a terrible photograph, but not that, all that black down there is actually a, a mosaic floor. Well, all these beautiful little tiles making beautiful you know, illustrations in the floor. And the last time I was in Capernaum, I was actually with our prime minister at the time, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He invited 200 Jewish Canadians on a state trip, and he invited 10 evangelical leaders, and I was fortunate to be one of them. And I said, uh, Prime Minister, I'd like to show you something. And he, I had him look down at that floor and said, that's a floor from Luke chapter 7 that we know Jesus walked across. Now, I'm not a superstitious guy, and I know you are not. Whoop-de-doo. But it's kind of cool to know that's the floor my Savior walked across. Jesus was there. He would sat in that, uh, stood in that synagogue reading the Old Testament scriptures and teaching. They, so we learn that this centurion is a man who's willing to sacrifice. What's the next thing Dr. Luke tells us about? Well, he tells us in verse 2 and verse 3, he was a merciful man. I mean, this is a centurion who is a brave, honorable, courageous warrior. And yet he's asking this young 30-something-year-old rabbi to come by his place to heal a slave. This is so out of character for a Roman officer. I mean, a slave, unfortunately, is viewed as chattel, property. And if they die, you send out your manager slave on Saturday morning to the Agora, the marketplace, and buy a new one. That's what you do. You don't show mercy or compassion towards a piece of property. He does. Kind of makes this centurion stand out from the rest of the officers. Kind of makes him a little bit unusual from, from the standpoint of Roman officers. And Jesus obviously has made an impression on him enough that he believes he, he's heard about the wonder-working power of this young rabbi and has obviously started to believe. What's the next thing we learn about this man? In verse 6, he was a humble man. A humble man. 
Now, I'm going to do some conjecture on this, because we don't know this for certain, but there's every reason to believe that he's probably one one of the most powerful men in the Capernaum region. As I mentioned, Capernaum was the sort of capital of the Galilean region. This is where you went to sell your your harvest, your uh, merchandise. This is where you went for entertainment, where you went for for, uh, government assistance. Everybody came to Capernaum. This all roads led to Capernaum. The reality is when the Roman army came into a land and they did what they do, they conquer. And they set up Roman law and they rule. And they're ruthless about that rule. The problem is that the Roman politicians back in Rome didn't like leaving Rome. It was comfortable. Uh, You know, when you have a beautiful Palatia village, why would you want to leave that as a governor to go to this dry, dusty, difficult, the people are difficult to rule, in this hot climate in Judea. They didn't. And so it often took years for the Roman political apparatus to catch up with the Roman army. And so often commanders on the field would have to cherry pick some of their best officers to become the mayors and the governors and the satraps and the magistrates and the judges to bring Roman law and rule in the land until the lazy, sorry, I shouldn't say that with politicians, but uh, you probably have issues with them out in Atlanta, Canada, too. But, uh, but they, they like staying back in Rome. And there's every reason to believe that this centurion has been one of those individuals who has been cherry-picked and has become the governor of the Galilean, or certainly around this area. So he is, he is likely the most, Im- most impressive, most influential, most powerful individual in the land. Not a man you want to trifle with, not a man you want to be on the wrong side with. He's a man that you want to kowtow to. He's a man who you want to give you what you're hoping he'll give you, whatever that might be. And this most powerful man in the entire region, we read here in verse 6, shows deference to a young 30-something-year-old rabbi who hasn't got some megachurch back down in Jerusalem with the World Wide Web and satellites feeding all over the world. And you know, he hasn't got you know, an army of people raising funds for him. He's just all along with 12 guys walking around Israel. And he shows humility and deference to this little guy because he recognizes who he is. You know, if you read the same story in Matthew's gospel in chapter 8, it even emphasizes it more. I'm not even worthy to have you to come into my home. And it would have been a palatial home. I'm not even worthy to have you in my presence. This is the most powerful Roman in the area, showing deference to this young Jewish man. I mean, in Jewish, in Jewish understanding in Jesus' day, you're really not a man until you're 40 years old. Jesus is, you know, early 30s. It's pretty extraordinary, pretty extraordinary. Now, I remember when I was uh, visiting out in our region in Prairies in Drumheller area, in the summer they have a massive uh, passion play, like 200 actors, and you sit in these sort of carved out uh, bench seats in the, in the mountain surrounding it, and there's thousands there to watch it. And after the show, I went to this centurion who played the centurion in the play, and uh, I said, hey, uh, I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to preach about you uh, coming up in uh, Luke chapter 7. You're that centurion. And I mean, there's something wrong with this actor because he, he stayed in character and pulled out his sword out of his scabbard and stuck the sword at my, at my neck saying I was one of those preach, the Christian preachers. 
And my, and my daughter took the picture, and I thought, boy, this guy needs some help. But uh, he's actually a nice guy. He's, his name is uh, Barry. He's a real estate broker in Cal Calgary. But he gets into the role, obviously. This, this centurion is the most powerful man, and yet she shows this deference to a, a young rabbi. So we learned some extraordinary things about him. His character is willing to sacrifice, to be merciful. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's a humble man. But none of these character traits are the things that sort of impress Jesus. I mean, what impresses us is sometimes it's all of the wrong things. We look at the person's bank account, what car they drive, uh, their education, the job they have, how big their house is. We get so impressed with all the wrong things. I mean, let's face it. We pay a guy $8 million because he can slap a puck 90 miles an hour. And we pay child care workers minimum wage. I mean, what's, what's messed up in our society? The things that impress us are all the wrong things. When Jesus looks at this man, what impresses him? Verse 9. His faith. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I'm here to tell you, that's what impresses Jesus. When his children exercise a faith... A level of belief that even when they're all five senses are saying, this is not possible, I believe it because your word says it, Jesus gets pretty excited about that. He gets pretty impressed. And the inference that this verse supplies for us is this. It is possible as a humble child of God to amaze your Savior. Ever thought of that? I could amaze Jesus? I would like to think I could do that at least once in a while. Not out of pride or arrogance, just pure gratitude for all that he's done for me. That something that I'm involved in or believing him for, he gets impressed with, he says, I'm amazed. Wouldn't that be wonderful to know you can do that once in a while with your Savior? It's possible. The scripture is inferring that very thing in this passage. He got amazed. Now, when I did a study of the word amaze or marveled, the word throughout the New Testament, I looked at all the verses that had this word. What I was amazed by was its reference was generally not positive. It was mostly negative. Meaning, more often when you see this word in the New Testament, it is Jesus being amazed by our lack of faith. Start for yourself in, in, uh, in uh, it's Matthew or John, I forget, Matthew 6.6. 6 where Jesus is amazed by our lack of faith. I mean, so, okay, let me tell you. So you believe I created the world, like ex and you know, just by word. You believe that. And, and, you, and you believe I can take care of your family this week. Yeah. You, you, and, and you believe I'm going to take care of this church. Yeah, 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 okay. But you can't believe me for this little thing? I'm amazed. I'm just amazed. I'm amazed. This is more often the case as you look at the New Testament where this word is used. Amazed by our lack of belief rather than our belief. But Jesus is amazed by this man's capacity to believe him. So amazed, he said, I've never seen anything like this in all of the land of Israel. And we don't even know the man's name, which is probably a good thing because back in the Middle Ages, they probably picked them out, cherry-picked them out, and started to worship him. 
but we'll meet him in glory. We're going to meet him in glory. The man who amazed Jesus more than anyone in his time on this earth. Well, let's move on. To our next point here. <laughs> a man of uncommon faith. The first thing we learn in verse 7 and 8 is that authority explains faith. Let me explain this. When I was looking at this passage as a, I wasn't even a year old as a Christian. This just helped me to understand faith. It made sense to me. The way this Roman officer, this soldier explained faith. In verse 7 and 8 he says, I understand authority. I'm a soldier. And there are people above me who say, go and do that. And you know what I do? I go and do it. And there are people, soldiers underneath me, privates and corporals and lieutenants and sergeants who are below me. And I say, go, or I say, come, or you're going to go there. You know what they do? They do it. Or there's going to be consequences. By virtue of my role, my position as a centurion in the Roman army, it affords me the authority to command. And my very words, my, my words have authority. And they must be obeyed. This is what made sense to me. We have God's word. And he's, it's just chock full of principles and, and promises and commands and precepts that the prudent and wise believer follows and obeys. It has authority. And you know what? It's easy for me because I got a red letter edition. So all the red words, those are Jesus' words. It's pretty simple. And even when I'm in a difficult, difficult situation and my senses say, don't do it, Steve. The word says do it. The wise, prudent believer does it. Because this has authority by virtue of Jesus' position and role and the power as the second person of the Godhead. He is God. He is the Emmanuel. He is God with us. And when he says something, he means it. He will come through. It's a promise. He's not a shirker. He will come through. Do you believe it? Because when you do believe it, and you step out in faith, and you, and you exercise that faith in your belief, Jesus goes, wow, I'm amazed. That's wonderful. He's amazed by that kind of lifestyle. And I've pastored for almost 30 years before taking on this role a decade ago. And I met many, many Christians in my churches. And many lovely, lovely Christian people. I'd love to be with them, have them in my home, go out and have a meal with them. But they're not exciting Christians. They haven't, they haven't, they haven't inculcated this in their life, this amazement of, of to, taking faith and taking it to another level of trusting God for things that are just extraordinary. They played it safe. And it's pretty easy to do that. It's becoming more difficult in Canada now to be a Christian, an Orthodox Christian, but it's pretty easy to be comfortable walking in the faith, coming in church. And I'm saying you're shortchanging your life if you don't step up and step out and believe some big stuff. And quite frankly, your muscle is not being exercised. You're not getting stronger. And the things, when you do it, the things you used to doubt three, four, five years ago, you don't doubt anymore because your muscle has gotten stronger. You've been exercising that faith. Believe in God, seeing and coming through and being amazed while he's been amazed by your behavior. He has the authority. His word has the authority. Believe him. Obey by faith. 
And the last thing, amazing explains Jesus' reaction. I've already touched on that. So let me, let me end just with a couple reflections as we close off our service. The first one is this. We can go to the next. Yeah. Great faith is not always characteristic of great people. Great faith is not always characteristic of great people. Again, when I was pastoring, I used to always have what I called my prayer team. These were individuals who were people of, who had the spiritual gift of faith. We all do exercise faith, but some just seem to have it in truckloads. Uh, I don't. I, I just looked for them. And I wanted to hang out with those people because quite frankly, more of what they, the way they lived their life is more caught than taught. You got to hang out with them. Find people of faith and make them your friends. You got so much to learn from them. And often I found that they were not always the big shots in our church. And no deference to elders or leaders or anything. But I mean, they're not just the Billy Grahams, although I'm sure Billy Graham had great faith. They were often the quiet behind the scenes people actually. And these individuals were just people of great faith who I had lead our prayer ministries. In my last church, we had eight prayer ministries and they led it all. And I had so much to learn from them. I remember sitting down with my staff at my, the last church I pastored, and it was a, we were in about a half circle, and, uh, and I did on Tuesday morning what I did every Tuesday morning. I said, how was your weekend? What did you do with your family? Just, we just had a, a little chat. And, and Catherine, my children's director, said, I did something different on Saturday. I took two of my children, uh, Julia and David, across the river. I pastored in Sarnia, which is a border town with Michigan, and Port Huron, Michigan. She said, we crossed the river and went into Port Huron, and we went to an old, you know, century, 130-year-old theater that they had just refurbished, and it was a gorgeous theater, which they, you know, all that old, polished, dark wood that we could never build with anymore because it's so expensive, carvings and gargoyles and, and chandeliers and, and brass and, and big red, heavy velvet curtains covering the screen and red velvet chairs. And I mean, there's like 130 years old and people are smiling. I could hardly even fit into some of those chairs anymore. And we went there and because on Saturday mornings they were offering free children's cartoons to uh, people in the community to come and watch with your kids. And, and we got there, and little David, who was about five, five years old or four or five years old, he walked in, and she said it was like he just came into a, an awesome temple, like everything was shiny and bright, and, and just um, he couldn't imagine a more beautiful. He thought he'd come into a temple. And then they went into the auditorium like this, and, and there was kids galore crawling over those brand new velvet chairs and just, just rambunctious, and they found their seats right in the middle. And then the lights started to go down, and the, the projection light came onto this large screen about two stories high as the red velvet curtains parted. And little David had never experienced anything like this. Just was like an awe of what was going on. And the projection came on, and before the cartoon started, you know what they do. They give you 20 minutes of commercials. It's evil, but you have to sit there for 20 minutes. And the first commercial was a commercial from Pepsi-Cola. And Catherine said, this large glass comes into view, and it's got to, you know, drips of water and condensation pouring down the side of it. And you know what these evil marketers are doing right there, you know? And it has Pepsi-Cola printed on the glass, and it comes into view, and little David's watching this. And then a, a bottle of Pepsi-Cola comes into view, and it starts to pour into the glass. And the popping, and the fizzing. I know it works, because I really want a Pepsi right now. 
and the foam comes over top, and everybody's just going, oh, yeah. And then a voice comes on. Uh, four words go across the screen, uh, and the voice then says the four words. What do you want? You know what they want you to want. They're, they're counting on you. Get up. I think I need a Pepsi. You know, like Pavlov's dog. You're just, I'm going to go get a Pepsi. David is five years old. He doesn't understand marketing. He has no clue about marketing. But what he's been taught by mommy and daddy is when a man asks a question, it's polite to answer. And Catherine said in the middle of that auditorium, he raised his hands and he yelled very loudly, I want God! <laughs> and that's what happened in the auditorium. And they, the people started laughing. Everybody was sort of rubbernecking. Who's that? You know, who said that? And I listened to that and I look at Catherine and said, man, our kids can teach us so much, can't they? They just get it. They just get it. You know, they know what it means to live by faith. When Jesus says do this, they do it. Jesus says go this way, okay. Jesus says jump, okay. Jesus says do a backflip, I'm not going to do that. Okay, <laughs> they just do it. For us, we're a little bit more sophisticated. You know, we start to justify why we might not be able to do that, even though he's commanded me. And in churches, we strike up, let's strike up a committee and talk about it for seven years before we actually do it. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with committees talking about building plans or whatever ministries. In fact, the book of Proverbs is replete with uh, uh, command and, and promise related to being good administrators and, and planning well. But I do think we sometimes use these justifications to not make the decision to step out in faith. Because we're fearful, or we're chicken, or we're not sure what our boss will think, or what my wife will think, or what my neighbor will think, or that person on, on the bus who the Spirit of God is telling me right now to go sit down and talk to him about Jesus, no way, I can't do that. No, no, I want you to go do it. No, he's going to think I'm nuts. We're, you know, we're really full of fear. We don't step out in faith when the Spirit of God is prompting us many times. But if you do, the muscle gets stronger. And you're going to live an exciting life. Because it's in those occasions that really cool things happen. Not just playing safe. Not just playing it comfortable. That's too easy. Step up. Step out. You know, there's this wonderful story in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus, you want to know what a, daily, a, life, a, a day in the life of Jesus is? You read Mark 1 and 2 and you, he's busy, you know, exercising demons and, and treating the sick and teaching and, and feeding. And, and, and he's a busy, busy guy. And he's exhausted. And he's in the back of a boat having a nap as they make their way across the Sea of Galilee to go to the other villages on the other side. And the interesting thing about the Sea of Galilee, they call it a sea. It's really a lake. It's only seven miles by 14 miles. I don't know what the kilometers are, but it's about that. And, and the interesting thing in the Sea of Galilee is the, oh, uh, the, sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea has all these storms. And then the Sea of Galilee is about, it's like a, it's like a long vortex, 14 miles long, and it's thin, and it's got these mountains on either side that just sort of suck these storms in off the Mediterranean Sea. They suck them into the lake. And even seasoned fishermen like Peter, 
I mean, this guy knows how to fish. He knows how to read the waves. He's a seasoned fish. He can even be fooled. And this is what's happened. A storm has come in, and they are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they're in trouble. Read it for yourself in Mark chapter 4. And in verse 38, they're bailing. They're bailing. Are they full of faith? No, the scripture says they're full of fear. Because fear, more than anything, I think, you know, we often say the opposite of faith is unbelief. No, I think the thing that kills faith more than anything is fear. Fear. We choose fear instead of faith. It's far too often. Fear is a serial killer. It's a murderer. Murders our faith. And Jesus is in the back of the boat, and they're, they're bailing. They're saying, you wake up, Jim. Can you wake up? There's a storm going. I'm not, he's tired. I'm not waking up. You wake up. I'm not waking up. You wake up. I'm not waking up. He's, he's exhausted. Finally, someone, I can imagine, they were sh- sh- taking hold of Jesus' shoulders. They say, Jesus, wake up. Don't you see the storm we're in? We're all going to die. Wake up. Don't you see what we're going through? Wake up. And I can imagine Jesus sort of going, Mark 4, verse 40. Why are you afraid? (laughs) Read it for yourself. That's his first words. Why are you afraid? Do you still not believe in me? You've been hanging out with me for three years and you still don't get? I mean, didn't you just see what I just did a number of hours ago? You know, demons were exercised, <laughs> loaves were multiplied. This is, this is peanuts. Why are you afraid? You know, this is where faith hits the road. We get to choose fear or faith. So when the doctor comes along and gives you the bad news, when your boss gives you the pink slip and says, I'm sorry, when your child is injured and it looks pretty serious, what are you going to choose? You get a choice. Because every day you get to choose how much God chooses to bless. You get a choice, fear or faith. The last thing I'm going to end, and this is where we close. I have no idea what time I'm supposed to end here, Pastor Josh, but I'm going to keep going. Great faith, like great strength, is most often revealed when it is easily exercised. Remember I started by saying when I looked at my son, I said, son, you need to exercise. Faith is like a muscle. And he has spent his life still to this day, 32. He's all buffed and jacked up and all the rest. He's lifting weights. And I said, when, a number of years ago when he was in university, and I used to text my, my son often trying to tell him what I was doing in my devotions that day, just desperately trying to make sure my boy was in God's word daily. We are in, it was this, I was in Luke 7. I said, imagine, you know, imagine us going to the Olympics this summer. It was an Olympic summer year. And we go see the, uh, the weightlifting competition. And uh, we're sitting in these big plush seats, hundreds of people watching people, people who should actually be exercising, watching the people down there who should actually get a break. And they're lifting weights that you can't imagine anybody lifting. They're just huge. They're ma- and they're massive. Men like, oh my word, word, I didn't know a human being could have muscles there. I mean, women who are big, you know I mean, in, in muscular, and, and they're lifting unbelievable weights. And it comes down to the last three contestants from the last three nations to win the gold medal. So imagine with me, there's a bar. There's a bar with some weights that are so massive, you can't imagine any human being able to lift those weights. And the first contestant from the country of Scotland, 
and the laddie comes up to the bar and he's all, he's all, I think that was Irish, and he's all chalked up and he's in that sort of thousand yard stare and he grabs hold of the bar and, he, and, and, and there's a clean and jerk so he's got to bring it up to here and then put it over. And, and he brings it up to here and the bar just bends. And I'm going, whoa. I, look at the size of the hill. And then and, and my son says, no, keep watching, Dad, keep watching. And he tries to get it over his head, but he fails, and he just drops to the bar, and he's out. Scotland's bronze. And then the next, the next contestant comes up, and he's in that thousand-meter stare, and he's all chalked up, and he, he's from... He's from Honduras. So he's a little guy. And he comes up, but he's huge. He comes up, and he takes the bar, and he lifts that bar, it bends, oh, bends right over. He's got it to here. Now he's got to lift it over his head. And he attempts to lift it over his head, and he's unable to do it. And he drops the bar, and he's out. And then the third contestant in that thousand yard or thousand meter stair, he's put all the chalk up. He's got muscles like a, I mean, he looks like a, like an Abrams tank, a Mack truck. He's just massive. I can't imagine. I mean, his legs are as wide and, and the same circumference of the, the cedars of Lebanon. He doesn't walk anymore. He kind of waddles because his legs are so big. He's just, he hasn't got a neck anymore. His, his shoulders are so large, they're the size of ripened watermelons. And he comes up and I look at my son. Oh, surely, look at him. He'll be able to lift that weight like with two fingers. He's massive. And my son says, watch. Keep watching, Dad. And he comes and he's in that thousand yard stare and he, step, he gets down, grabs the bar and those big watermelon shoulders sort of move into place. And all you see is just a nose popping out. <laughs> and he grabs that bar and he brings it up. He just wills it there. It's bending over like this and he's got it. And he's just staring out of the audience. And in a moment of just willfulness, he lifts the bar over his head. He's from Madarasha. And he thinks he's got it, but he doesn't. He's desperate for the whistle from the referee, but he's sort of like here, and he's sort of like that. And then he finally gets control. The whistle goes, he drops the weight. And the Russian coach and the six Russian trainers take hold of this big, massive hulk of a man who's completely fatigued, completely spent, and waddle him off the platform. And I look at my son and say, wow, I thought he would be able to lift that weight with his two fingers. He's so huge. Look at him. Look at him. It's so impressive to look at him. And yet, he struggled. He struggled. And my son wisely said, yeah, yeah, it's the weight that will indicate the true strength of a man. I went, yeah. So you show up on Sunday morning looking all spiffy. My life is just rosy. <laughs> Everything is going great. Jesus loves me and I love him. But you're not fooling him. And you shouldn't fool us because we're all broken. And we all have a tendency to choose fear. So let's just be authentic about it. Let's be honest about it. Let's help each other to choose faith more often than not through authentic relationships and encouragement and mentoring and coaching and just coming alongside. Because our tendency is to choose fear. It's a serial killer. 
when it should be faith. Because the ease that I talk about, the ease of great faith is because we serve and worship a great God who will come through. He'll come through on his word. You can take that one to the bank. It's better than a bank. But will you? In Luke chapter 7, the disciples are honest enough to come to Jesus and say, we haven't got that kind of faith. What was Jesus' response to the honesty of these disciples? Their admission that we're choosing fear more often than faith. Was it, then get lost. You've been hanging around with me for three years. I'm sick to death of you. You just never learn. Get lost. I want you out of my life now. Thank goodness that's not Jesus' response. His response is in verse 5. Luke 17. I know. Just come follow me. Just keep following me. And he tells that wonderful story of the mustard seed. Just the faith of a mustard The smallest seed in, the, in all of the Holy Land grows into one of the largest plants in the Holy Land. The analogy is clear. Just a little bit of faith can grow some marvelous things in your life. Just be authentic. Be honest with one another. And my prayer is that you and your life and in your family's life, but in this church's life, will know remarkable things to come in the years to come as you follow your pastor. You're going to see great things. Great things happen because you're people of great faith. You get to choose. All of you. You get to choose every single day how much God chooses to bless you. You want to bless life? Choose faith. Father, I want to thank you for this time in your word, and I pray, Lord, that you will apply your word to the hearts and minds of your children. There's something that each of us need to hear from this uh, message today. I really have no idea what it is, Lord, but I know they do. Through the ministry of your spirit, you've already started to impress upon them what that is. My prayer, Father, is that by faith they will believe, they will pursue you, and they will obey. And do it this week, whether it's to talk to that neighbor whether it's to talk to one of their children, whether it's to talk to their spouse on a difficult subject, help them by faith to choose that still small voice telling them to pursue it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all.